Hello, welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Chitizian, and this month, once again, we are having a discussion with Dr. Nessus Kopalian. He is the author of our monthly EVN Report Security Briefing. Uh, welcome to the program, Nessus. My pleasure, Maria. Uh, this month's security briefing we have called Frozen Conflict Resistance and Strategic Negligence. Um, and as we all saw events in uh, April in the region, in Nagorno-Karabakh, further confirmed what you say is Russia's ineffectiveness as a security partner and a regional power. Armenia realized that Russia's desertion of its obligation was not a conditional phenomenon, but what you called strategic negligence, leading to the collapse of the Russo-Armenian uh, security partnership. I'm going to start off with a very basic question. Has Russia now become an obstacle to improving Armenia's security situation? Um, to a large extent that it has. Um, in the past, uh, Armenia operated under the logic that Russia was a security guarantor and a reliable security partner. Uh, that obviously diminished to a large extent after 2020, and specifically, as we've talked about, after November uh, and September of 2022 when uh, Azerbaijan did a wide-scale uh, attack on, on Jedmuk, uh, among other, the entirety of the front line. So all of these sort of, you know, develop questions as to, you know, whether Russia's responsibilities towards Armenia with respect to the various uh, treaties and security obligations that it has, uh, are those sustainable or, ha or have they ever been uh, true uh, with respect to uh, these obligations? And um, to a large extent, Armenia has come to the conclusion that this is not the case. And most of the evidence kind of points to this. And so with the diminishing of Russian influence in a region and the diminishing role that Russia has played in Armenia's security architecture or the collapse of it, the dynamics have changed. And Armenia has sought to uh, fill this vacuum, this void, by appealing to diplomacy and to different actors that are not Russia. Russia's response to this has been to basically create obstacles to Armenia's security. And this is the strategic negligence that uh, the security report talks about. Now, the uh, broader concern and the question that comes up is, why is Russia doing this? What is the objective of strategic negligence? And of course, by virtue of engaging in strategic negligence, Russia is serving as an obstacle to Armenia's security. And so the important objective here is to sort of unravel and understand what the uh, underlying uh, strategy here is for this growing uh, doctrine. We need to note that Russia's fundamental objective with respect to Armenia and to other parts of the region has been to sustain influence and dominance. With uh, the growing rupture in Armenia-Russo relationships, uh, Russia needs a mechanism to bring Armenia back into its fold. And so strategic negligence is designed to basically enhance Armenia's dependence by, on Russia. The more problematic or more concerning Armenia's security vis-a-vis -vis Azerbaijan, the more Armenia would need Russia. And so by engaging strategic negligence, Russia is making it more conducive for Armenia to become relatively more desperate and thus return to Russia's orbit. And so strategic negligence is designed to enhance Armenia's dependence on Russia. So ever since, as I noted, uh, uh, September 2022, Armenia has understood that it cannot be dependent on Russia and has slowly pivoted west. Russia's objective is to enhance Armenia's insecurity, therefore forcing Armenia to desperately rely on Russia. And so it's counterintuitive, but fundamentally the uh, output remains the same, to enhance the security uh, architecture by creating more dependence on Russia. Right, and this uh, could also um, answer as to why 
um, Azerbaijan has been able to push certain but buttons and push limits right under the nose of Russian peacekeepers. Um, and, and as frustrating as it is for us, I think if, if we look deeper into it and, and understand Russia's policy of uh, conflict persistence, right, it's, it's, that's its policy in the region. And therefore, by allowing Azerbaijan to keep, um, you know, moving uh, the chess pieces, if you will, um, it's, it's creating this constant conflict. Is it a way of it getting Armenia to engage and, and, and lead it to a new conflict? Um, so that's one component of it. We have to understand that uh, ever since the 1990s, the policy, one of the policies that Russia has had with respect to maintaining a geopolitical dominance as a hegemon in the various spheres that it engages this kind of behavior in is to implement some notion of a frozen conflict. So whenever post-Soviet uh, states that are within Russia's orbit or spheres of influence have engaged in conflict, Russia has mediated in these conflicts as arbitrary. But as act, you know, in its extent, the, to the extent to which it acted as uh, arbitrary, Russia has engaged in what we call authoritarian conflict management. So Russia imposes a frozen conflict and then manages that conflict. At time, it thaws into warfare. At time, it goes back to a frozen uh, state where it's hybrid warfare, or what, what do we call in Armenia, neither war nor neither peace, so that phenomenon. And this allows Russia to control that conflict. So in the post uh, Artsakh war period, we have seen Armenia seeking some level of stability and constantly appealing to peace, where Azerbaijan has engaged in the opposite modality of behavior. And we have to understand that it is against Russia's strategic interest to have peace in the region, not because Russia is evil or anything like that. This is not a value judgment, but rather it is in Russia's strategic interest to maintain frozen conflicts. If you have peace, if you have solution to the frozen conflict, Russia's capacity to manage conflict is no longer there because peace has achieved. So to that extent, Azerbaijan's uh, you know, behavior, which is consistent with conflict persistence, does align with Russia's interest at this point. So if Russia wants the frozen conflict to sustain itself or to thaw from time to time and for Russia to manage this development, it needs conflict persistence. Armenia right now is speaking in the language of peace that contradicts a conflict persistence, whereas Azerbaijan is doing the opposite. So within that capacity, there is an alignment with respect to Russia and Azeri interests as far as uh, mitigating or, or creating obstacles for regional peace. Okay, you wrote in this month's security briefing that since 2016, Azerbaijan has become Russia's partner <clears throat> excuse me, in enhancing uh, its frozen conflict toolkit. Um, and this Russo-Azerbaijani tandem is similar to the Russo-Armenian tandem prior to 2018. Uh, can you explain this further, please? Sure, we really need to be honest, intellectually honest about these developments. So, you know, ever, ever since 1994, when you had the ceasefire for the first uh, uh, Artsakh war, uh, Armenia's position uh, was one of maintaining the status quo. In 1997-98, there were discussions of sort of, you know, doing a step-by-step -step resolution to the conflict, so on and so forth, and that led to the collapse of the Petrosian uh, administration. Ever since then, Armenia's position has been singular and really not negotiable. Uh, that um, the issue of Artsakh is fundamentally going to be defined by its independence, that the other regions that Armenia had uh, taken control over, the buffer zones were negotiable, 
that uh, fundamentally Armenia would serve as a security guarantor of Artsakh and that Artsakh's independence and the territories that we consider to be part of the uh, oblast of Nagorno-Karabakh was non-negotiable. Azerbaijan's posture was completely the opposite, right? That not only Artsakh's independence is an absurdity to them, that they want everything back within the territorial integrity of Azerbaijan. So you had two extremes. Now, the negotiations that proceeded through the entirety of this period produced no outcome, because if they produced any outcome, you would have some notion of peace, and therefore the frozen conflict would be resolved. Armenia played an instrumental role in obstructing one component of the peace process as we sought to maintain the status quo. And in that context, we were not really uh, very constructive in proceeding to establish some modality of peace. And this was consistent with Russian interest. Azerbaijan was even worse than us because Azerbaijan also took a very maximalist position. Therefore, you had two sides with maximalist positions that allowed for conflict persistence. And this was consistent with Russia's need for authoritarian conflict management. And so for a long time, both Armenia and Azerbaijan played a role in maintaining conflict persistence. And because Russia had a lot more leverage uh, with respect to Armenia, uh, until 2020, Armenia's position was no different. Uh, in the last year and a half, of course, Armenia is now speaking the language of peace. And this is outside of Russia's playbook because since 1994, neither Armenia or Azerbaijan has spoken in the language of peace. We have spoken the language of negotiations, but always reserved the right to engage in force as a mechanism of deterrence against the other. And so this modality of conversation, this new narrative, is inherently contradicting Russia's capacity for conflict management. Because what Armenia is saying is, we want a resolution to the conflict, and Russia is saying, I can't have resolution to the conflict because that completely diminishes my regional influence. And so Azerbaijan, therefore, to go back to our initial point, is serving now the mechanism of allowing conflict persistence. Okay. In, in, in past briefings and past conversations that we've had on this platform, we've talked about uh, how uh, Moscow is playing by uh, Baku's playbook. But in, 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 in the larger context, can we say that Russia uh, has lost um, influence in Baku and in Yerevan? Absolutely. Um, you have to understand that Russia lost a lot of influence in Armenia, both with respect to soft power and also within Armenian security apparatus. Uh, when Armenia realized that its security architecture had collapsed and Russia was no longer a reliable security partner. Well, when you're no longer a reliable security partner, you're not really a security partner. And so this realization, right, this dependency that Russia, Armenia had on Russia that they are our security guarantor, therefore we need to abide by their wishes, that leverage is no longer there. And so, of course, influence has diminished. With respect to Azerbaijan, Russia's influence was not to the same extent as it was to Armenia's, but still Russia exercised a lot of hard power influence in the region. The Ukraine war changed that dynamic. Because uh, Russia's uh, attention right now and its resources are diverted to the Ukrainian front, it no longer has the relative power and the regional hegemonic influence that it used to have vis-a-vis -vis Azerbaijan. So for two different reasons and developments, we have seen a diminishing of Russian regional power, uh, one with Armenia with respect to the collapse of the security architecture, and one with uh, uh, Azerbaijan with respect to Russia no longer having the same levels of power. And this diminishing, of course, has created serious complications. 
Uh, Armenia feels uh, unprotected, spe specifically after September of 2022, while Azerbaijan feels emboldened. And this has completely and continuously contributed to Armenia's uh, growing insecurity. And this is why I make the point that Russia's strategic negligence has created an obstacle to Armenia's security because an emboldened Azerbaijan and an unprotected Armenia is completely enhancing the security and power disparity. Okay, let me just, I, I, I don't mean to harp on this issue, but um, as we saw, Azerbaijan moved to uh, create a new checkpoint uh, at the entrance of the corridor. Um, and this, of course, has raised even graver concerns uh, for the uh, for Armenia, for obviously for the 120,000 Armenians living in Karapak. And this happened right under the nose of Russian peacekeepers. It wasn't that they were ineffective or they couldn't have stopped it. We could say the same thing about how the so-called eco-activists, you know, blockaded the, the, the corridor for over four months uh, when it was very clear that the Russian peacekeepers could have allowed at least one passage, one lane, you know, for, for um, for 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 people to to keep moving how if russia is losing influence but at the same time it feels as though it is allowing azerbaijan to get closer and closer to its objective of strangulating uh the people of artsakh and 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 creating a situation where it will lead to outright ethnic cleansing or you know without a bullet being fired people just leaving once the roads are open so so this is what i'm trying to understand and i think many of us are are are, are Grab, trying to grapple with this? Uh, That's a great question. That is a very multi-tiered and nuanced question. Uh, and there are various sort of, you know, analytical levels and empirical reference that allow answers to this uh, important concern that you have. So Russia has two sort of general objectives with respect to letting uh, Azerbaijan keep pushing the envelope, so to speak, or to get its way. But this doesn't mean that it's allowing Azerbaijan to get to its final objective. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, the one component, of course, is that this allows Azerbaijan to exercise agency and for the Ali regime to go back to its people and say, look how we're taking control over Artsakh, and therefore we have a strong government and uh, our, you know, our regime is persistent and we are defeating the Armenians, etc., etc., etc. So there's a very important element of a domestic consumption here with respect to these sort of performative checkpoints that they think put forth. Second, right, why does Russia allow this? And there are two components to that as well. First, it's no secret that Russia is seeking the collapse of the thing of the velvet government in Armenia. And so Russia's objective is that the more of a crisis that you have in, uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Artsakh, and this began with the uh, so-called echo, you know, activists blocking Lachin all the way to the establishment of the recent checkpoint, the, the intent was that Russia keeps allowing this, as, as you noted, they could disallow it. They kept allowing this, operating under the logic that if there's a crisis in Artsakh, it'll create domestic concerns and uh, political instability in Armenia. That hasn't worked out. But those remain the objectives because Russia's playbook still operates off of the 90s and the early 2000s. And so tying developments in Artsakh to domestic developments in Armenia is part of the Russian playbook. But that has not produced the results that Russia wants. So there is that one component. The second component is that to make the situation in Artsakh so dire that it'll force the Republic of Armenia to be so, to sort of, you know, in a very desperate way, crawl back to Russia and ask Russia to solve the problem. And that will bring Armenia back to the dependency structure and back into the orbit of Russia. 
So, you know, the, the more difficult you make the situation and the less tools that Armenia has to solve this, uh, to solve this situation, Russia's, Russia's assumption is that Armenia will return to the dependency structure, thus leading to an enhancement of Russian influence over Armenia. So those factors are clearly designed to both weaken Armenia, but this weakness will translate into more Russian de dependence, therefore enhancement of Russian influence um, in Armenia and possibly into the region. Uh, the consequence of, of this, of course, as you noted, is that it, it basically gives Azerbaijan a lot more agency. And will it lead to Azerbaijan achieving its objectives by basically, uh, you know, cleansing Artsakh of the Armenian population, perhaps not by force, but, but also but by virtue of these developments? And does that not contradict Russian interests? And the argument that I would make is that uh, Russia has internal red lines with Azerbaijan that Azerbaijan will continue to proceed engaging in this kind of behavior, but Azerbaijan has stopped short of two important things. For one, this blockade has not led to a humanitarian crisis that we all feared it would. Azerbaijan is very clever about this, right? So they are going to create a situation where life is very difficult for Armenians, but it doesn't lead to the crisis that we would assume it could lead to, and thus you would have a mass exodus. Second, Russia also reserves the right to basically push back uh, towards Azerbaijan should Azerbaijan's behavior contradict Russian interests. Not the interest of Armenians or the interest of the Artsakh Armenians, but rather Russian interests. And at this point, we have not gotten there. So if we look like, uh, excuse me, if we look at how things have developed with the uh, launching blockade, or if we look at how things have developed with this checkpoint, we're seeing a lot of synchronized uh, behavior here. There's a sort of synergy about, with respect to, you know, um, Azeris allowing Russian troops to move through, Russian um, um, sort of, you know, uh, convoys to move through, or even in the performance that we saw recently with the checkpoint that, you know, Russian presence is there, that, you know, Russian troops are escorting Armenian villagers, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of orchestration here that simply does not suggest that there's a clash between the two uh, countries because there's a consistent Russian presence in all of the things that Azerbaijan is doing, and we cannot be blind to that. And so that in of itself suggests that these are synchronized activities precisely designed to punish both the Republic of Armenia and also create problems politically for uh, Armenian society. Okay. Um, do you think that there are certain, you, you, I want to come back to something you noted about red lines that Russia has. If Azerbaijan were to engage in outright ethnic cleansing and uh, a new aggression, a new attack that would lead to, you know, hundreds or thousands, God forbid, deaths, um, would at that point Russia step in to halt, to stop uh, um, Azerbaijan because it hasn't done in the past. So why would it do it now? Um, well, Russia is banking on two things. One, uh, they're pretty certain that the international community would step in before Russia has to step in because uh, as when it comes to ethnic cleansing, uh, this has been a red line from the broader West. And so Azerbaijan has been threading the line very, very carefully, right? One of the few points that made the very vigorously is that we are not creating humanitarian crisis. That is an absurd argument. Don't talk to us about ethnic cleansing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're very, very sensitive to that. So they tend to be very careful with that. Now, assuming they assume they have sufficient political capital to go through with it, right? To go through through uh, uh, ethnic cleansing. 
Russia would step in in that context to curb those thing developments, not because it cares about the people of Artsakh, because Russia needs the Armenian population in Artsakh to maintain the Russian presence in Artsakh. So if you have ethnic cleansing and the population of Artsakh en masse leaves, then the Russian peacekeepers have no relevance there, right? They would have no reason to stay there. And that means an important strategic component of the Russian presence uh, in the South Caucasus, which is to have a Russian uh, peacekeeping force in Nagorno-Karabakh, would be diminished. So in that context, I don't see Russia allowing this to happen because, you know, Russia's objective since 1994 has been to have boots on the ground. And the boost on the ground that it has is justified by virtue having an Armenian population in Artsakh. This is why they're not going to allow a, an ethnic cleansing. But doesn't matter how hard conditions are for the Artsakh people or how much that they're suffering, that's secondary to the Russians. And so it's important for us not to conflate uh, Azerbaijan's egregious behavior and their collective punishment with the Armenian people of the Armenian people and the extent to which Russia will allow that to translate into uh, ethnic cleansing. And this is perhaps also why it's only the Russian side, if I'm not mistaken, who keeps talking about the status of Nagorno-Karabakh and saying, let's keep it for the future, which is what we've seen for the last 30 years. While the West really hasn't been talking about status so much, they're talking about something else, which is a whole other conversation, obviously, that we need to have at one point. So the, obviously, Russia's intention, like you said, is this persistence of the conflict. That's why it's throwing in the status of Okay. No, this is a double-edged sword. Okay. Armenia wants peace, obviously, but on what terms and to what extent? The West comes in and says, we need to have peace in the region. This will diminish Russian power. This will lead to democratic growth in Armenia. It will lead to economic growth in the region. Uh, it's stability, so on and so forth. So far, so good. But then we ask the West, okay, what about the people of Artsakh, right? And the West comes back with this whole conversation of whatever peace treaty there is, there's going to be a guarantee of the security rights of the Artsakh people. But when we start talking about status, that's where it gets complicated. But at least the West says we need to have a solution if Armenia has to take some kind of a hit on the status issue that is worth it in relation to conflict persistence, continued instability, economic undevelopment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's one side of the conversation, right, which is inherently problematic to us, but at least it allows us to understand where the roadmap is for that. Russia comes and says, I have no solutions. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to prolong the process where there's going to be uh, a discussion of status down the line. Um, we can talk about, in theory, what the rights and protection of the Armenian population would be, but I don't even know what that's going to look like, Russia says, because generally I'm not very good at talking about rights and things, uh, protection of populations. And as far as uh, peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan is concerned, really can't talk about that because that is heavily hinged on the status issue. So if you don't solve the status issue, you're not solving the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So euphemistically, you can have all kinds of negotiations that you want. But fundamentally, what Russia is talking about is conflict persistence and the, the, uh, the, the uh, animosity between the two sides never being resolved. So it's, it's a question of where do we go with this? Conflict persistence is not going to allow Armenia to democratize to the extent that it needs to, and it's not going to allow Armenia to democratically develop because all the research shows that fractured countries or conflict-prone countries cannot have economic development. And so frozen conflicts are conducive to underdevelopment. So Russia's peace model or negotiation model is conducive to perpetual and persistent frozen conflict. 
The Western model attempts to alleviate and solve the thing uh, of frozen conflict. But what they're asking from us is still a little unclear. We kind of know what they're hinting at, but they have to come out and say, listen, uh, at least you need to recognize Artsakh as part of Azerbaijan, but we're going to give protection to this population. We're going to bring in international troops to protect them. And if Baku acts up and violates uh, uh, these uh, um, these norms, then we can start talking about the Kosovization of Artsakh. So there needs to be an, an honest uh, discussion that should Aliyev regime engage in what we expect them to engage in, there are going to be repercussions. But until we're convinced that that is the case, of course, we cannot agree to that. But we need to be intellectual honest about this. At least the Western model suggests some resolution. And Armenian society needs to have an honest conversation whether this resolution works for us. And if not, are we ready to engage in continuous warfare? The Russian model neither presents a solution, nor does it allow us to, to basically deal with development and growth. It basically says you're going to have what you've had since 1994, conflict persistence and frozen conflict. And I'm not sure if Armenian society is willing to accept that because we can't have uh, you know, a an iteration of 2020 every seven years, every 10 years. And so the freezing and unfreezing of conflicts is a serious, serious problem for us. And so this is the honest conversation that our society needs to have. Well, both are impossible. I mean, if we look at it through that lens, I mean, at, at this particular juncture, um, both the Western uh, version of events or the or the Russian uh, uh, persistence of, of, of this conflict management or conflict persistence um, puts Armenia in, in a... In a Horrible. In an impossible situation. It's in that in an but within this impossible situation, you have to consider your strengths and weaknesses. With the Western model, what you could do is you could basically develop, re-strengthen yourself, and potentially the Kosovization of Artsakh will allow us to address the rights and, and the protection of that population. With the Russian model, you're not able to develop, you're not able to strengthen yourself, you're not able to address the security and safety of the Artsakh people. So in this context, um, you know, you're not you're never you're not going to get a win-win situation. Okay, that's an oversimplification. But you have to understand what at least allows you to enhance your capabilities, because we have to accept the fact that there are going to be no quick solutions, and we're talking about a five to ten year trajectory uh, as far as the next a flare-up of this conflict is going to be. And to be uh, kind of strategic at this and develop a grand strategy. Where do we want to be five to 10 years from now? A relatively developed country that has the resources to potentially uh, deter Azerbaijan and engage them, or to be in a state that we have, what we are, which is going to be continuous reliance on Russia, an un unreliable partner, conflict persistence, and underdevelopment? It's a terrible conundrum to be in, and every month I hope that we won't need to have this conversation and that's naive thinking, obviously. Uh, thank you for uh, shedding light a bit on uh, this month's security briefing. We'll be continuing to publish uh, these briefings as uh, we move forward in this uh, situation that we find ourselves in. Thank you, Narcissus. Thank you, Maria.